0: Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And by Duhop, Duhop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn more at dohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com.
1: Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Scott McCartney, and I'm confused about a lot of things, like why New York City is only now getting around to waging war on rats, and why airline flights are full, and yet airlines aren't making money in the first quarter, at least based on the numbers we saw this week. Ben Baldanza, I hope you can explain the world to me and straighten all this out.
2: Well, Scott, I can't explain how New York can get rid of rats, and I'm a bit confused myself about airline losses right now. But the first quarter is often a relatively weak quarter for airlines, mostly because historically they've counted on strong business travel in the first quarter, And everyone seems to accept now that business travel is off a bit and there's not enough leisure, bleisure, or whatever you want to call it to fill that gap. Now, at the same time, we only have Delta's earnings, so we'll have to see if other airlines maybe did a little better in this quarter, but it wouldn't surprise me if as an industry we're running at a loss by the end of the first quarter, but that'll straighten out later this year. Maybe, Scott, you can explain to me what happened to Bud Light, too, in their stock. But on a more serious (laughs) note, later in the show, we're going to have a great conversation with Randy Babbitt, the former head of the FAA and all-around great guy.
1: Ben, I'm not going to touch the Bud Light controversy, but I am looking forward to talking to Randy. He is one of my favorites. Let's start with Delta Airlines earnings that you mentioned. The first quarter results were reported this past week. Delta posted a net loss of $363 million for the first three months of the year. The loss was bigger than expected, and it was driven in part by the new pilot contract Delta signed with the Airline Pilots Association. Delta CEO Ed Bastian brushed off the potential of a consumer pullback in spending. Bastian said air travel is something the consumer is prioritizing. Quote, they may be pulling back in other areas, but I don't see it in our credit card data and I don't see it in our bookings. Delta stock was just above $34 on Tuesday, but after a warning from American, more on that to come. And the Delta results announced on Thursday, those shares were trading just below $34 by the end of the week. Not a big move, but seemingly out of sync with the enthusiasm airline executives have for demand and the blockbuster summer we seem to be about to experience. One note on that summer Delta said already 75% of the seats to Europe have been sold. It's only mid April, so if you're going to Europe, this summer, uh, you may be too late, certainly too late to get a cheap ticket. Despite all that demand, American Airlines made news this past week warning of worse than expected first quarter results coming towards the end of the month. United, too, had already warned that higher labor and fuel costs were taking a toll. American shares tumbled 9% after the forecast was announced. American will report the actual results on April 27th. Ben, you and I were at an airline meeting at Duke University that I helped organize, and the top-level airline executives there talked about historic demand for air travel, and yet we're getting disappointing first quarter results. What's really going on?
2: Well, I think what's going on, Scott, in Delta's case, is they were first out of the box With their pilot cost increase, that doesn't mean that they're getting ahead of the rest of the industry on that. It means they've set a standard that certainly at least American and United are going to have to match or even beat. The other thing is that there have been challenges in New York where Delta is a very big carrier around pressures to trim flights. Most of that is the summer, not the first quarter, but part of that is because New York hasn't fully recovered in terms of people going back to the office at least five days a week. So I think it's a combination of fuel costs and labor costs. In Americans' case, it might be something a little more serious in that they don't have the sort of hub concentration that Delta has. So if Delta's losing money in the first quarter on a margin basis, I'd almost expect American to lose more because their network just isn't as strong. That said, referencing the Duke meeting you talked about, there is a lot of optimism about this summer. And I think whether that optimism is warranted or not is really a function of how much airlines are going to have to trim, either because ATC isn't staffed or their own airline isn't staffed well enough. But I tend to agree with most of what the industry execs there said that there's a lot of demand from consumers for a lot of strong summer travel. What Delta said about Europe kind of shocked me that they're already 75% booked. What that tells you is not only is it there's strong demand, but that Delta is somewhat worried about upfront high fare paying demand because if they were really bullish on that, they wouldn't have sold all those seats
1: already. Yeah. And I think not just upfront demand, but also coach demand for business travelers who whose companies wouldn't buy business class tickets. The, the labor cost impact in the first quarter is interesting because some of that hit comes from charges airlines have to take because they, they're paying back pay to pilots and they didn't accrue enough um, anticipating the wage increases. In other words, the wage increases have been bigger than they were budgeting for, and so they're taking a charge uh, to um, to catch up because of the bonuses and the back pay that they're paying. I, I think labor costs uh, are higher too, not just because of pilot contracts, but because they're having to pay more for baggage handlers and gate agents and fuel as well as you mentioned. You know, one sign of potentially even higher labor costs, uh, and, and this this made my eyes pop. Several Los Angeles City Council members put forward a proposal that large hotels in the city, those with 60 rooms or more, and the Los Angeles International Airport pay minimum wage of $30 an hour by 2028. That's just five years away, or less than five years away. A friend of mine who follows LA politics closely says he thinks the motion for a new city law is likely to pass. He also thinks airlines and hotels will challenge it in court based on discrimination, basically that uh, you can't require workers um, in one part of the city to get paid $30 and not require it in other parts of the city. I'm not sure how you can tell the airport they have to pay a McDonald's worker $30 an hour when outside the airport on Century Boulevard, there may be a McDonald's worker who might earn half of that. So we'll see. It's interesting, too, Los Angeles international traffic has yet to fully recover, mostly because Asian travel has yet to fully recover. But some people did move inland to cheaper, larger housing in the pandemic, and the inland empire really has grown. We've seen airports like Ontario, California, see greater traffic growth than other airports, uh, either at LAX or airports like Burbank and Orange County, which are are capacity-constrained. You could see a city law like this making it more expensive to fly out of LAX and travelers finding cheaper fares and more flights at other airports in the LA basin. In other stormy news, Ben, Fort Lauderdale's airport was shut down last week from Wednesday evening to Friday morning by severe flooding, another sign of the severity of weather that airlines are having to deal with these days. And one other note, the FAA said it referred another 17 unruly passenger cases to the FBI. Here's a number that will make you crazy. Since late 2021, the total of such referrals for violent and threatening incidents on board airplanes is more than 250. Last month, a bipartisan group of lawmakers made a new push for legislation to bar passengers fined or convicted of serious physical violence from commercial flights, arguing the enhanced penalty might be a deterrent. I don't know, in most of these cases, alcohol is involved. I'm not sure people who do bad things on airplanes are really thinking rationally, but a stronger penalty would give aviation workers a bigger threat to get people to calm down and comply with crews.
2: All good points, Scott. And there's one final news bit of a curiosity. Delta has begun nonstop flights from JFK to London's Gatwick Airport, a route Delta hasn't flown in 15 years. Delta has had very good access to London Heathrow, the larger airport, with its partial ownership and joint venture with Virgin Atlantic Airways. And JetBlue announced it was adding flights to Amsterdam starting this summer. All signs of just how much international demand there suddenly is. Don't you think, Scott?
1: Yeah, I do. And uh, third European destination for JetBlue. I hope it's working, Ben. It's uh, it's really interesting development. But I suppose if Delta's already sold three quarters of its seats, uh, JetBlue is selling seats well to Europe as well.
2: Well, and if JetBlue needs an argument that the big carriers are worried about them, they can just look at Delta flying to Gatwick. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Well, Airlines Confidential wouldn't exist without the support of our sponsors. This week's show is brought to you by DoHop, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. DoHop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue, lower costs, and maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, which we all know never really happens, right, Scott? Right. (laughs) DoHop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit DoHop.com, that's D-O-H-O-P.com. And Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is the only geared propulsion system delivering industry-leading sustainability and dependable world-class operating costs. With up to 20% less fuel and CO2 emissions, the GTF engine has revolutionized commercial aviation and set the foundation for more sustainable aviation. Learn more at PWGTF.com. We're very excited to have with us today Randy Babbitt, the principal partner at Babbitt and Associate, but a man who has done many things in the airline industry. Welcome to the show, Randy.
0: Well, thank you very much, Ben. Uh, thank you for inviting me.
2: Well, you've had so many roles in aviation. You've been a pilot. You've been head of the Airline Pilots Association, a consultant. You were the FAA administrator from 2009 to 2011, and even a Southwest Airlines executive. Did you have a favorite role among all these? One that you found the most interesting and enjoyable and maybe a least favorite?
0: Well, that, uh, that's a very broad question for sure, but uh, yeah, I, I think uh, what I did most of my life, interestingly, was was uh, my, my start in aviation was uh, flying, and uh, I always enjoyed my airline flying, but got into other things, and of course, uh, bankruptcies in the 90s uh, ended that part of the career, and I was in a position where, you know, when you're you know, 50-something, you, you're too young to quit and too old to start over. So that led me to other places. But uh, I did enjoy that. My, my time at the FAA w- was fascinating because it's a big organization, and I came to have a much better appreciation for it. I went there almost with trepidation. And when I realized uh, it actually runs very, very well, uh, constrained, of course, by congressional oversight and congressional funding. Uh, you know, the FAA often has access to monies you know, from their own sources for overflights and things like that, but you can't use it because Congress dictates it goes elsewhere. So, but all in all, I enjoyed them all. I, I wouldn't say I had a least favorite, but uh, I certainly uh, enjoyed some better than others.
1: Hmm. Randy, it's a, great to be with you. I know you're very concerned about the state of pilot training. Um, let's talk about that some. How how should pilot training be improved or
0: or rethought? Okay, well that's, uh, well. First, uh, Scott, it's it's also great to be here with you, and and uh, again, my thanks for including me. We, you know, we, there was an accident that happened back in '09, a tragic accident. And the complete cause is, is, you know, in writing uh, by the NTSB. Uh, It was a very uh, incompetent pilot, and the NTSB reports goes on at great lengths. He had falsified records. He had uh, done any number of things, uh, hidden the fact that he had been terminated from more than one carrier. Uh, But yet, uh, when this hearing, you know, was looked at, by Congress, they decided that they should increase the amount of flight time sixfold, literally six times what uh, the rest of the world uses as a minimum. Uh, And in fact, that was not the cause of the accident. Both the pilots had well over 1,500 hours. They were not properly trained. So I guess what troubles me most is we are relying on, and I think masking the idea that simply getting more hours is going to make you a better pilot. It won't. Uh, flying a, a light airplane by yourself for a 1,000 hours in clear weather is not going to train you to be an airline pilot. And I'm advocating that we force uh, more curriculum into the training so that we our pilots are, in fact, exposed to swept environments, jet engines, icing, high-altitude turbulence, and, and just all the things they're actually going to face uh, in their piloting career. And I think we're misguided. And I think actually we've introduced risk into the system by saying that just get a lot more hours and you'll be a better pilot. And uh, I and a lot of other professionals don't believe that at all. And I think we're misguided and we're misleading ourselves uh, to believe that.
1: So with that more technology, uh, should we be using virtual reality goggles? Uh, what, What kinds of stuff would you put people through as part of that training?
0: Well and virtual reality is a great example. What is really helpful is to have seen something that might happen as an emergency and you can train for those without any danger in a simulator. You can do it in a virtual reality environment uh, where you're exposed to it with things that you would never do in an airplane. Uh, We learned the hard way Uh, back in the in the 60s and 70s. We had a number of of big airline accidents uh, there was an accident in New Orleans. There was an accident in uh, Atlantic City. In both cases, we destroyed, uh, in one case, a DC-8, the other uh, a 707, and killed, uh, you know, a dozen crew members who were training, and they were practicing losing an engine on takeoff. Well, if that goes wrong, uh, you, you have a real, I mean, you can you can hurt people. The other one in, in uh, New Orleans crashed into a hotel and killed a number of people in the hotel right by the airport. So we can simulate all this and give them exposure to it, uh, and, and then th- they won't be surprised when they see it. Whereas, the just building up, you know, lots of flight hours in a single engine airplane doesn't expose you to anything. And we we certainly know. Uh, I, I would. Uh, note for everyone that as we are on this call today, I assure you that out over the Black Sea, there's a number of fighter aircraft that uh, probably have, you know, nuclear capability on board and they took off from an aircraft carrier. And those pilots probably only have three or 400 hours and they're very well trained. They've been exposed to everything they need to do. And we should incorporate more of that thinking and training into our curriculums instead of just saying, we'll just get more time. I mean, that that's like, saying to, you know, a high school student, you need more time in school, so get more study hall. That isn't going to do anything for you without a curriculum.
2: I love what you're saying here, Randy, you know. I have about 650 hours of flight time, but the biggest thing I've ever flown is a Cessna 172, and I've never flown in or out of what anyone consider to be a real big airport, except maybe in the 1980s, after 11 p.m., DFW Airport would let us shoot some instrument approaches (laughs) back then, right? And right. I could double or triple my time, and you still wouldn't want me in the right seat of a seven three and a 20 So it seems like what you're saying is it's a quality, not quantity, issue. So how would the FAA get to quality hours mm-hmm. for quantity hours?
0: Well, Ben, the uh, following the passage of the le- legislation uh, that went into effect in 2013 right in the legislation they indicated that the number was was a 1500 hours however you could get credit uh the the quality hours were worth more and therefore you could reduce it so for an example if you go to uh i'll just use a couple of schools that i know are, are accredited embry riddle purdue northwestern you graduate from one of those schools In their aviation curriculum you only need a thousand hours not 1500 because they know that you were well trained you were exposed to you know the effects of icing and the you know the various things and the de-icing fluids um and and, you know people say well you know but but more flight hours well i I beg to differ uh i happened to be the last airplane that landed at national airport uh when air florida crashed the two pilots in that airplane and they, they were both Air Force pilots, Captain, had more than seven thousand hours. They had absolutely no experience operating in ice. And what the accident, what happened in that accident? There, without getting too complicated, the icing conditions uh, made uh, the instrumentation of, of how much power their engines were producing incorrect. They were showing that the engines were, were producing full power. But in fact they were only producing about 70% of the thrust they needed and they had ice on the airplane. Th- this, this is what I'm talking about. these were these pilots had thousands of hours but if you've never flown uh, in icing conditions, uh, and of course I'm, I'm on the other end of that spectrum uh, when I hired at Eastern I was based in Washington and, and you know we'd fly the shuttle so we would go from Washington to LaGuardia to Boston to Newark and back. And if weather was laying over there, you got a lot of practice in snow and ice and weather and in busy airports. But you can, you can do that in simulation and you can show people, you know, this is what happens if you don't do this. This is the result and it won't be good. And then, ah, you know, the aha moment. So uh, uh, that, that's what we're going to have to head toward is making certain that people do get exposure to this and you can do it safely in simulation. So, Randy, FAA modernization is also a big concern of yours and, and
1: ours. And mm-hmm. I think most pilots and airline executives and travelers, where are we now with next gen? Why, why can't the U.S. move faster on technological improvement when we've been the leaders of new technology in so many other areas?
0: Mm hmm. Well, uh, it it, it does produce an interesting conflict, but we certainly have the capability today to design a flight plan that would be optimum for the aircraft and its weight and the current winds and and so forth along. So there is a perfect route that a computer and and could modify. You know, sometimes the the jet stream shifts a little bit as you're moving along and, and so forth. So we have that capability today. But on the other side of that, uh, would be well now. Wait a minute. Uh, you know, I have a, a very nice uh, twin-engine Beechcraft, and I don't want to put all that stuff. I don't want to put another fifty thousand dollars worth of equipment. Well, you know, when you have airplanes that burn, you know, anywhere from four to eight thousand pounds of fuel an hour, saving five minutes every flight <laughs> adds up to a lot. Uh, I, I just use my old uh, my old company, Southwest Airlines. Southwest alone burns two billion gallons of fuel a year. That's just Southwest Airlines. And I mean, you, you can see what the price does, you know, when it goes up, if it if it goes up 50 cents a gallon, that upsets us at the pump. You know, you put 16 gallons, it costs you $8 more. Uh, when you burn 2 billion, 50 cents costs you a billion dollars. So, you know, the carriers are all for this more efficient, you know, shave the time. Let me go faster. Let's, you know, eliminate those ground delays. But there's other parts uh, that say, no, we, we, we can't equip. Well, that, that's easy to solve. You just say, okay, well, if you don't have that equipment, then you have to stay below 12,000 feet or 18,000 or, or a number. Everybody else at high altitudes, uh, you know, can use this equipment. The other part of it is it's not free. And, you know, uh, sometimes I I, I think, you know, it's the old adage, you know, everybody wants to go to heaven. Nobody wants to die. Everybody wants all this stuff. They just don't want to pay for it. And so we run into that, too. The FAA, well, we have infrastructure. We have other things. And, uh, you know, we just, uh, it's just not a priority when I think it should be.
2: Well, that begs the question, Randy, is the FAA getting the money it needs to do what it needs to do. Are today's budgets bigger than what you had to work with or at least big enough for today's priorities?
0: Uh, I would say no, Ben. I don't think that uh, the budget has kept up in terms of, of real dollars. It has not expanded at even the rate of inflation. Is I don't follow it annually now, but it hadn't in a number of years and I don't suspect it changed. And, and I appreciate that You know, we want to be frugal. We want to balance our budgets and and we want to do those things. But the other side of the equation is at what cost to the airlines, uh, you know, when you have 700 aircraft in your fleet or 900 aircraft in your fleet or 100 aircraft in your fleet, you, you know, you say, well, this is the cost of doing that. I would answer, what is the cost of not doing it? I mean, think of the carbon footprint. Uh, if we could save just 5%. I mean, we, we do things today that make absolutely no sense to me. Uh, we have technology for electric nose wheels. It, you know, so you you crank up a two-engine airplane. It's burning, you know, each engine is burning 50 pounds a minute. They're going to taxi out and they're going to wait for 20 or 30 minutes uh, waiting to take off out of Atlanta or Detroit or wherever they are. And that was wiser than than investing in, you know, an electric push or, you know, some other technology. Or when I'm airborne, uh, you know, I could go on a route that would, would uh, allow me to shave 5% of my en route time off by going direct. I mean, we're still navigating over points in the ground that were designed for the airmail system. And I'm not making that up. It's, you, you, everybody said, oh, you exaggerate. I'm not. <laughs> it's, it's exactly where the, we have 20 centers and all of those were, were, were based on where the airmail delivery service worked. Uh, so that's not a real good reason in, in 2023 to keep doing it the same old way as you were doing it in 1925.
1: So, so why do you think fixing air travel isn't a bigger priority for the country?
0: Well, it, uh, I think a lot of people look at it that, uh, you know, not everybody in the country flies. Everybody in the country does drive. Uh, we spend literally tens of billions on roads, federal funds. We, you know, I'm not sure what the FAA budget is today, but the entire operation. Remember, the FAA has close to 50,000 employees. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a big company. It's the size of Southwest Airlines. It has uh, you know, close to 15,000 air traffic controllers. They've got 7,000 uh, aircraft inspectors that, you know, look at all the maintenance facilities. We've got technicians that maintain all of this nav facilities all over the country. And in some very difficult places, you know, up in Alaska, maintaining that equipment is very expensive. But interestingly, if, if we would go to an all- you know, independent uh, and and literally GPS navigation, you wouldn't need a lot of those ground facilities. You'd keep some of them for emergencies, and you'd keep some of them for the aircraft that don't want to upgrade, but we don't need to maintain the system at that level. And so, you know, it, it, it does present the conflict.
2: Well, Randy, let's talk about an industry icon in a way. You work closely with Herb Kelleher, both at Southwest and before that on a presidential commission back in the Clinton presidency to improve air travel. Mm -hmm. What was most striking to you about Herb?
0: Oh, boy, that's, uh, (laughs) we don't have enough time today to go through all the, uh, but simply put, he was just a wonderful person. Start with that. He, uh, you know, he was exceedingly humorous. But he, his ability to recall and, and, and employees and, and recognizing them, I mean, I, I tell a, a very quick story, and I'll be short with it. I have two daughters, and during those commission hearings, they came down one day, and they were both in college, and they took you know the spring break, and, and they came down and, and listened to the hearings, and then we went to lunch, and Herb joined us. And this was in 1992. So go uh, 20-something years later, Uh, My granddaughter, who at the time was 20, uh, came out to Dallas and came to see me and we went all through Southwest. And she asked if we were going to meet Herb. She says, because mom said he was the coolest guy. I'd love to meet him. I said, well, he just doesn't come around that much anymore. And lo and behold... Elevator doors open and out walks her. Well, he gives me a big hug and how's everything going? And I said, well, great, but I'd like you to introduce uh, you to my granddaughter. This is Savannah. He looked at Savannah. Remember now, he hasn't seen, he met my daughters more than 22, 23 years earlier. And he looked right at her and said, are you Heather's daughter or are you Tiffany's daughter? And that to me, he had never seen, he met my daughters one time and remember both their names from over 20 years back and wow uh, yeah just amazing but his humor his uh, just his you know knowledge of the industry and and just uh doing things differently he was just an amazing person he had a uh he, he would disarm you with his humor and then he could dissect you with his legal skills <laughs> so he <laughs> He was a very interesting man, for sure. Uh, and it was always good to be on his team uh, as opposed to opposing him.
1: <laughs> That's a great story. Um, yeah. You got nominated to be head of the FAA on a day when you and I were flying in the Grand Canyon in a Cirrus. Um, okay. Just for the record, I've got a thousand hours, um, and, but some simulator time in larger airplanes, but still not the 1500. Um yeah. But we stopped for lunch in Sedona, Arizona, and I remember your your phone. Maybe it was uh, a BlackBerry back then, but it yeah. was exploding. This um, is the day the president nominated you, and and what I remember you saying was, "I had no idea so many people needed a job." <laughs> What did you learn about government and bureaucracy when you were leading a big agency?
0: <laughs> well, I get quoted occasionally for uh, some comments I made pretty early on, which was uh, uh, almost 40 years in the private sector did not prepare me well for government service. Uh, hmm. It uh, It's a different world. They budget differently to the frustration of a lot of people who understand, uh, well, as an example... Uh, the Management Advisory Council. I was appointed by President Clinton to be on that, and Bob Crandall uh, was also on the council. And Bob, of course, was uh, very well known for his background at American Airlines and his financial expertise. And he would just go crazy. That what do you mean we don't depreciate the equipment? Well, we don't. We just own it. You know. Well, that's that's not being honest with what it really costs you. And he would go on at length, but that's just not the way they do it in the government. And uh, uh, it is frustrating, but I can tell you that the people that work at the FAA, like any company, I mean, if the three of us started a company tomorrow and hired 100 people, a year from now, we'd be scratching our heads and saying, who hired those two? You know, what What in the world, you know? But 99% of the people who work at the FAA give 110% every day. They work hard. They're proud of what they do. And I, I think, it, it, you know, there's a little bit of a misnomer that uh, people, oh, you know, you're a government employee or, you know, just, you know, just part of the bureaucracy. Well, the bureaucracy, it's not a bad word. I mean, it is what runs the country. And, uh, and we've chosen to do it that way. So that that was a little frustrating. But uh, interesting, you know, adjustment for sure to, to go from the private sector uh, into that world for sure. Yeah, I'm sure.
2: Well, we're glad you took that on when you did though, Randy. You know, there's been a lot of talk about someday having single pilot cockpits Mm -hmm. with a backup pilot on the ground maybe who could take command remotely and land a plane in an emergency. I think this has come up because of drones, self-driving cars, EV tolls, but also because of the pilot shortage and increasing labor costs. Do mm-hmm. you think this is ever a reality for the commercial airline business in the U.S.?
0: Oh, I, I do, Ben. I, uh, I see a time. I mean, there's some things, you know, that, that make some sense. I mean, uh, let's take an international flight, for example. If you're going to fly more than 16 hours, you have two full crews on board, so you have four people, two in the cockpit and two, you know, in rest and they rotate around and so forth. Well, could that be two pilots, one of them at rest and, and one in the cockpit and, and a monitoring pilot in, in a remote facility? If something happened, you have another pilot on board. But meanwhile, you know, in the interim of something, you know, the airplane is fully capable of being operated. As we speak right now, uh, I assure you there are drones I, I got to witness them myself from Creech Air Force Base, flights over Afghanistan, and it was amazing. The uh, these airplanes were up there for sixty hours, and these were, you know, the, the, the fellow that was giving me the demo was an F-15 pilot. He was he was doing a great job flying the thing around. He enjoyed it, and he said, you know, it's, what's cool is I fly for about two hours, and I, if somebody comes in and relieves me, I can go get a sandwich, and and the airplane keeps flying. You know, we just hand it off to him. You know, people talk about well, maybe, you know, maybe they might do cargo or, but, you know, that that's going to be a big social adjustment too. Uh, I can remember when DFW started uh, and they had a train that had no driver. There were still people that would walk between the two terminals because they wouldn't get on that train. Uh, and now every big airport in the country has, you know, driverless delivery of, and granted there, there's, you know, it's a two dimensional operation, but still, uh, well, you go back in the thirties, there were people who wouldn't ride an elevator unless it had an elevator operator. <laughs> so uh, we we've made a lot of progress, but, uh, uh, I do see the time when, you know, you could, you could certainly take advantage of a lot of the, uh, the technology, uh, to assist the pilots. And, uh, uh, you know, give them more information and so forth. And, you know, all the backup capabilities. So, yeah, I think it's feasible. It's just a question of the timeline.
1: Hmm, interesting. And kind of with that, Delta signed a a contract with its pilots um, with big raises and other benefits. Uh, United and American are going to follow suit in Southwest too, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. so with the recent big rise in pilot contracts, uh, w- what could that lead to? What, what do you think about all that?
0: Well, I, you know, uh, we've seen, you know, ups and downs in this industry, uh, where, you know, times are good and the contracts get good. I mean, we came out of the pandemic, we're short of pilots. We're trying to attract more pilots. Uh, I, I, and, you know, candidly, a, a lot of these, carriers went multiple years beyond the amendable date of their agreements. And so if I said to you, you got a 10% raise and you said, you know, when was the last one? I said, well, it was six months ago. That's a big raise. Uh, if I said I got a 10% raise and it was three years ago, that's a different story. And so some of these numbers, uh, you have to be a little bit careful. Well, how long did they go without any contract increases? And, uh, and the other thing too is the airlines get more junior. Everybody looks at the top rate, not the entry level rate. And, and granted, they are paying some bonuses to attract pilots, but I see that being mitigated. You know, if slowly but surely we'll get this training resolved. And maybe train more like Europeans do, and and. Uh, you know, less expense, you know, pull the gateways down so more people can get into the business so that we, we don't just have little Lord Fauntleroy's son flying the airplanes because he's the only one that can afford to learn. You know, that that may change too. But yeah, they, they, they've had, uh, of course, you know, it, that same carrier, uh, <laughs> Delta, uh, had to file bankruptcy a number of years ago and uh, nobody was complaining about, you know, oh my goodness, they, it's wonderful. They took a 20% pay cut. Uh, you know, people forget that side of it. But uh, uh, all in all, I think it straightens itself out over time.
1: Well, very good. Well, Randy, it's been wonderful having you. I think we've all learned a lot and uh, appreciate all your service to the industry and all your insights. Uh, Thanks for being on Airlines
0: Confidential. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Enjoyed it. And uh, all the best to both of you.
2: Thank you so much, Randy. We really appreciate it. And we did all learn a lot today.
0: (laughs) Very good. All right, Ben. Well, thank you.
2: We'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential.
0: Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding.
1: Thanks again to Randy Babbitt for a wonderful talk. Ben, it's official. We can tell listeners that our special guest at Aviation Festival Americas 2023 in Miami Beach will be Ted Christie, CEO of Spirit Airlines. Ben, Ted obviously worked for you, and I think it's going to be fascinating for you to revisit Spirit, which you ran for many years with much success, with Ted. I look forward to a deep dive into the state of air travel today, the future of low cost carriers and many other issues. We'll be on stage with Ted on the morning of May 17th. We'll be at Aviation Festival Americas both days, May 16th and 17th, so come see us. Airlines Confidential listeners get a special discount. Just go to airlinesconfidential.com and click on the banner and use AC50 to save 50% on your registration. Since it's earnings season, I thought we might take a trip down memory lane and talk about quarterly earnings. Ben, you probably have plenty of stories. One of the things I took away from writing earnings stories for many, many years at the Wall Street Journal is how CEOs in all industries, I covered technology, airlines, and a lot of other companies, have a penchant for wanting you to write about anything and everything except the bottom line. It's called an earnings report for a reason. It's not all about, look at how great our revenue was, or our EBITDA, or our ancillary revenue, or our subscriber growth, or our cost-cutting, or our fancy new logo. It's about the bottom line. Too often, I encountered executives who wanted to steer you away from the bottom line because, of course, it was ugly. It's a lesson I've taken to my students in business journalism. Each semester, I'd doctor up a couple of fake earnings press releases for fake companies and see if they were paying attention in class. They have to write an earnings story, and they better include the net income. That's the bottom line. As football coach Bill Parcells famously said, you are what your record is. Sure, revenue or subscribers or Instagram likes may be growing, but sooner or later, you have to earn money or it's bye-bye. You are what you earn. Ben, do you have some favorite earnings season stories?
2: Well, I've been part of lots of earnings calls, and we always did talk about our bottom line at Spirit, but also, like some of the companies you mentioned, want investors not only to be focused on the short term, but think about the future and where the company's going. One of the challenges that public companies have, Scott, is you need to make money each quarter, but you don't want that to stop the company from investing in ideas that might take more than a quarter to realize. And so you need to sort of balance that. And say, here's what we did now, but here's how we're setting ourselves up for success. When it comes to stories, the only thing that comes to mind as most important is something listeners have heard me say before. The quote from John Dasberg that says, the fastest way to stop losing money is to stop doing things that lose money.
1: <laughs> that, that's right. I heard <laughs> You know, the the old uh, thing, well, we're losing money, but we'll make it up on volume. And you heard that over and over. At one time in my career, I covered the pager industry. Remember when we had pagers? And all the paging companies wanted to talk about was new uh, signups, new users. That's all that mattered to them. They kept losing money and kept losing money and kept losing money. And eventually, uh, pagers went away and those companies never made money. Every time I would put you know, how much they lost in the, in the stories. And it just infuriated them because they didn't think it was important, but it is important. It ultimately is what matters.
2: Well, Scott, how many years did it take for Amazon to be profitable? All they talked about initially was number of products sold, number of prime subscribers, mm-hmm. number of daily transactions as signs that their business was growing and their brand was becoming important, but it wasn't until much later that they started saying, and we actually make money doing this.
1: Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, And it's all something, something to watch. I'm not saying earnings have to be the only thing, but uh, I do think it matters even for developing, you know, in the early years when Amazon was developing, um, you got to pay attention to how much money they're losing because, you know, it's possible. Now, wasn't obviously wasn't true with Amazon, but it's possible to run out of money. Okay, let's turn now to this week's mailbag. We're going to start with an easy question, but one I think that a lot of people ask. And then we're going to dive into some really complicated and fascinating airline history. First, Jerome from Weehawken, New Jersey asks, Hi, guys. What does it mean when the pilot tells the flight attendants to cross-check? And Jerome adds another question. Do you ever consider offering a line of podcast merch to your listeners? What do you think, Ben?
2: Well, I bet a lot of our listeners know the answer to this. But the cross-check is really simple. It just means look at the door opposite your sitting and make sure that it's armed. It's important that the condition of every door on the airplane is secured, either armed or unarmed. You don't want slides going off when they don't need to. You don't want passengers being able to open the door, you know, without some sort of problem happening. And you certainly want to make sure that when the doors need to be secure, they are. And the cross-check means everybody look opposite and make sure your doors are secure. In terms of airlines' confidential merch, we should talk to our producer on this, Scott, and if there's a way we can do it profitably and be able to give listeners a really good deal on some merch, I think we should do it.
1: That's right. It's all about the bottom line, right? Okay. Okay. Now that we've cross-checked each other and disarmed the escape doors, Thomas from Dallas takes us back through a lot of airline history with a question about possible missed opportunities for JetBlue. A lot of this happened before you joined the JetBlue board, Ben, so I think it's fair game and you may have some interesting opinions. I know I do as a Dallas resident and flyer. And some of this happened before JetBlue started flying in February 2000. Here goes. Ben and Scott, I know that JetBlue is a hot topic right now and has been discussed quite a bit, but I hope you guys will see fit to entertain my questions slash theory. For many years, I have thought that JetBlue missed some golden opportunities to become relevant in middle America and become a truly national carrier. I've always felt that one of their biggest missed opportunities was not making a play for Frontier sooner. In 2001, Frontier reinvented itself and basically became JetBlue West. Their product was a complete knockoff of JetBlue. Live TV at every seat, the Frontier charged a small fee, friendly flight attendants, full cans of soda, a new Airbus fleet, generous legroom, etc. I flew this version of Frontier quite a bit when I was in law school in San Antonio from 2005 to 2008. They had great fares and great service. Southwest had not yet entered the Denver market, and when they did enter in 2006, they didn't offer nonstops to San Antonio for a few years. I always enjoyed flying them, but they were never really profitable. At that time, United, before the Continental merger, was kind of asleep at the switch in Denver. They retired their 737 fleet without a direct replacement, and instead used CRJ700s with the X-Plus product. It seemed to me that sometime between 2001 and 2008 would have been a good time for JetBlue to scoop up Frontier and establish a presence in Denver before Southwest arrived and grew rapidly. The product planes and service philosophy were so incredibly similar that an integration probably would not have been as much of a clash as we've seen with other carriers. However, once Southwest got going in Denver, the die was cast, and it would have been a fool's errand to get in the middle of the competition between them and United. So let's stop and take that one by itself. Should JetBlue have gone after Frontier in Denver back in the early 2000s?
2: Well, this was a nice walk down memory lane, Scott. But I also think when you think about what could have or should have happened, you have to think about the position of the individual carriers and the whole industry at that time. 9-11 really hurt the industry in lots of ways. It took many years for demand to return. You have to remember that that version of Frontier had to go into bankruptcy That's not the frontier that exists today. And the frontier that was the JetBlue knockoff didn't work, largely maybe because of what you said, because of Southwest growth at Denver, but maybe other things too. So whether JetBlue had the balance sheet or its own issues to be able to pull off a merger like that in the middle 2000s When they only started in 2000, the carrier was probably way too small to think about that kind of big deal way back then. That's my thinking. In hindsight, it probably is a good thing they didn't try that, but I just think the timing was wrong. If you think of the airlines today, position back in the middle 2000s maybe you could argue that would have made sense but that's not the way the world looks Scott
1: Yeah no certainly I mean 911 happened uh it was less than 18 months after JetBlue's launch and JetBlue was was certainly focused on trying to grow in New York um but um boy when when everything was grounded and people stopped traveling for quite a while It was just a matter of survival for airlines. And I think you're absolutely right. There was uh, a merger at that time would have been seen as uh, really irresponsible. um, Even everybody was just trying to hang on to their cash.
2: That's right. Well, Scott, here's Thomas's second question. The second blown opportunity, in my opinion, was when Delta pulled their DFW hub. DFW was practically begging someone to come in and set up shop in Terminal 4E, also known then as Easy Street, which is now Terminal E. They weren't shy about it either. I remember them publicly courting Southwest. Now, this wasn't without risk, but if you look at the Dallas-Fort Worth market at the time, American was barely hanging on. I believe the later bankruptcy, one of their executives testified that their strategy during this era was to limp along, and Southwest was still hemmed in by the right amendment at Dallas Love. Years later, when the push to modify the right amendment to allow nationwide service from Love Field gained traction, one of the main touted benefits was providing competition for American Airlines in the DFW market. I just wonder if JetBlue had seized the opportunity and set up a focus city at DFW, would that have blunted the effort to open up Love Field? Would JetBlue be a second carrier at DFW, like Southwest is at Denver today? I know there were other opportunities, though much less desirable, To be had when American Airlines de-hub St. Louis, Delta de-hub Memphis, United de-hub Cleveland, and Delta de-hub Cincinnati. But those metro areas aren't near as big or lucrative as Denver or DFW. I'm curious to know your thoughts.
1: Okay, I'll start on this one, Ben. I jokingly take credit for Southwest successfully bringing about an end to the right amendment which many of our listeners know restricted commercial air service from close in Dallas Love Field in order to protect airline service at DFW. Southwest threw down the gauntlet at an event I did with Gary Kelly when he was new to the CEO's role at Southwest. He announced that Southwest was challenging the right amendment at a chamber of commerce breakfast where the program was me chatting with Gary. He chose that forum to drop the bomb. It's interesting to look back at that very turbulent time. Delta and Northwest both filed for bankruptcy reorganization in late 2005. Delta dropped its DFW hub that year, too. American was reeling. Southwest was opportunistically pushing for a love field compromise, which was agreed to in 2006, though nonstop flying to all parts of the country didn't start until 2014, that was to give Americans some time to recover, but also to allow Love Field to get a new terminal built. Interestingly, JetBlue objected to the Love Field compromise, accurately predicting that it couldn't compete there if Southwest controlled most of all of the gates. Should JetBlue have set up shop at DFW in 2006? The airline economy had only partially recovered from the 2001 terrorist attacks, and the Great Recession actually started in 2006 with the subprime lending crisis. JetBlue was only a few years old and battling American, even in American's weakened state, would have been really expensive in Dallas. The stock market crashed in 2008. Honestly, a big play for Dallas might have sunk JetBlue financially 15 years ago. What do you think?
2: I agree. The same reason they shouldn't have gone after Frontier, I don't think they have the mass, the brand, or just the airplanes to make a big play to be a number two in Dallas. And Scott, I would challenge anyone to show me where a number two at a big hub really makes a lot of money. There's plenty of examples of the number one making money, but American has always struggled in Chicago as a number two to United, Mm -hmm. and it's questionable whether anybody in Denver makes really good money, given there's three carriers hubbing what should be a one-hub city. There's no number two in Charlotte, there's no real number two in Miami, Or there was a number two in Atlanta with AirTran, but that got bought out by Southwest and relatively quickly they shut down the Atlanta hub operation. So being number two at a big hub is not something that most airlines aspire to. I will also say that the closure of places like Cincinnati and Memphis and others are all one of the positives, even though the people in those cities might get mad at me for saying that, they're one of the positives of consolidation. Think of it this way. When Northwest was on its own, it had hubs in Minneapolis, Detroit, and Memphis. In that world, Memphis was unique in terms of the kind of flows it could carry, Raleigh to LA, for example, or things like that from their Detroit and Minneapolis hubs. So, if they had closed Memphis, they'd have lost close to 100% of the revenue, but not lost 100% of the cost because they would have had to shrink, get rid of their lowest paid pilots and labor, you know, and average costs would have gone up. So, they kept the hub open. Years later, when Delta and Northwest merged, that reality changed. Now, because of Atlanta, Delta could close Memphis because they could replicate most of the Memphis revenue through the Atlanta hub so they could close Memphis. And while the people in Memphis, I'm sure, are sad they lost what was once a hub, Delta is clearly stronger for that, just as the industry got stronger when what I would call a number of marginal hubs got closed. Those were the hubs that kept pricing really depressed on long-haul routes because that's where all the excess capacity was. People may hate the fact that the industry consolidated, but it made the industry stronger and it effectively made the carriers better.
1: And you know, Ben, one other footnote to that that I've always found fascinating, those mid-continent hubs, the, a lot of their reason for being was because most narrowbody airplanes didn't have the range to make it coast to coast. And so they would stop in Memphis or Cincinnati or Cleveland or Kansas City at one point uh, and other places uh, and rearrange passengers for the different cities they were going to get to. Along came the A320 and new generation of 737s that could fly coast to coast. Um, And JetBlue was part of the killing of those hubs um, because it could go coast to coast. And so all of a sudden you could fly from New York to San Jose or San Diego or other places on the West coast without making a stop for gas in the middle part of the country. And so I think that was that was also uh, part of the uh, the end of a lot of those hubs. One other thing I wanted to ask Ben about when you talk about the Struggles of a number two carrier at a big hub. Uh, Spirit became number two at DFW with incentives from the airport to add service. It's mostly point-to-point service. They're not really connecting passengers in DFW. But it always fascinated me that they got larger than uh, United, uh, Delta, and others at DFW. Um, What was the thinking for Spirit at DFW in becoming number two there?
2: Well, they were number two with like 5% share. Mm -hmm. They weren't number two with 30% share. And that's what allowed them to be successful in Dallas by having a low price offer that American really couldn't match economically They could match it emotionally, and they mostly only flew every route once a day. So they really weren't doing what American was doing. They weren't really competing with American carrying business travel. They were just skimming the real cheap traffic that American had walked away from as they built the hub. So it's easy to become number two when number one is so huge. Mm -hmm. And Spear became number three in Chicago after American and United, but wasn't anywhere close to the scope and mass of American or United in Chicago. They became number two at Intercontinental Airport in Houston also, but again, the same thing. So I don't think you can think about Spear being in number two with three or five percent of the share all at the lowest price end as equivalent to what Delta was doing in DFW or what Air Tram was doing in Atlanta, for example. Yeah.
1: yeah. All right. Well, thanks to Jerome and thanks to Thomas for great questions this week. That's all for Airlines Confidential this week. Have a great week, everyone. We'll talk to you soon.
2: And we hope to meet many of you in Miami. Have a great week.
0: This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.